Um, on the standard of proof question, uh, I think there is a pretty clearly optimal rule and it's preponderance of the evidence. Short answer is I don't think we can consider the question of the standard of proof independent of the other procedural frailties. Title IX coordinators left to their own devices are making just very capricious and inconsistent rulings whether or not, you know, the standard is preponderant. If you have a higher standard of proof, no one is ever going to be found responsible because no one can prove anything. This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. On today's episode, we're on part two of our three-part series exploring Title IX sexual misconduct proceedings on college campuses. For this part of the podcast, we separately interviewed four professors to consider the evidence standard in college proceedings. Many Title IX proceedings use the preponderance of the evidence standard. Is this the right standard? What are its benefits? What are its drawbacks? First, a little background. In 2011, the Department of Education sent a Dear Colleague letter. This letter required universities to rely on the preponderance of the evidence standard of proof, which holds that a student should be found responsible for sexual misconduct when it is more likely than not that the student committed the misconduct. This is in contrast to a higher standard of proof called the Clear and Convincing Evidence Standard. The Clear and Convincing Evidence Standard of Proof requires a student to be found responsible for sexual misconduct only when it is highly probable or reasonably certain that the student committed the misconduct. I'm I'm generally in favor of the 2011 guidance. The Dear Colleague letter is what it's um, known as. That's Professor Catherine Baker, University Distinguished Professor of Law at Chicago-Kent College of Law. And I'm in favor of the preponderance of the evidence standard. Uh, and, I, and I think that there are three primary defenses of the, of the preponderance evidence standard. One is doctrinal and one is contextual. And the other is uh, a sort of real world um, understanding of why it's important. So I'll give each one. Um, the doctrinal answer is this is sexual harassment. It's being regulated as sexual harassment, and sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination, and we adjudicate sex discrimination claims um, under a preponderance of the evidence standard. When and if Harvey Weinstein gets um, accused of sexual harassment for doing the very same kind of things that happens on college campuses for groping and forced kissing and sexual bullying, um, those cases will be adjudicated under a preponderance of the evidence standard. And that's why it's appropriate here. Um, it is true that in some of these cases, um, what is alleged actually might also be criminal. Some of the stuff that's been alleged against Harvey Weinstein, as I understand it, is criminal. Um, that doesn't preclude it from being sexual harassment. If you actually look at the facts of Vincent v. Meritor Savings Bank, the first sexual harassment case decided by the Supreme Court, um, that there was an alleged rape in that case, but the everyone assumed that as a adjudicated as sexual harassment as a form of discrimination, you didn't have to use criminal law safeguards. Um, so because this is discrimination, preponderance is the right standard. That's the doctrinal answer. The contextual answer is these are university proceedings. Universities, by and large, don't use higher standards of proof. The, the vast majority of universities um, use something closer to the preponderance of the evidence standard. Some of the more elite universities use clear and convincing standard in certain situations, but for the most part, the standard of proof in these more 
informal adjudicatory proceedings that are the hallmark of the ways universities regulate the conduct of their students, universities have a good deal of freedom of setting the um, standard of proof where they want to. But the real problem here, I think, um, this is the real world answer to the problem, is no one can figure out with a very high degree of certainty what happened in these situations. Um, you have no witnesses, no demonstrable evidence. Um, you have two people testifying and only two people testifying, and they're asked to testify in a language that they don't have because none of us are very good at describing sexual experiences because we don't do it with any kind of frequency. So these two people are told to stand up and say what happened, and they don't even have the words to put around what they often can't remember anyways, because in addition, in the vast majority of these instances, one or both parties were drunk. Thus, in Pairing their ability to remember what happened. So if you have a higher standard of proof, no one is ever going to be found responsible because no one can prove anything to that higher standard of proof. So it's perfectly principled to say, in light of that situation, yeah, well, okay, but I really don't want to punish someone who was innocent. And the only way I'm going to feel comfortable punishing someone is that if they're innocent, right? And so what you're saying there is false positives are really, really a problem for me. That's a principled stand. The problem is that we have so many false negatives and we will inevitably have so many false negatives given the level of sexual entitlement that everybody basically agrees exists on college campuses that we send the message to women that, sorry, we just can't regulate this behavior because false positives are too big a problem and we're never going to get to that clear and convincing standard ever. So you just have to live with this. As I say, I don't, I don't think that's unprincipled. I understand the problem with false positives, but, but you have to understand the problem that follows from false negatives, which is a message to women that this is basically unregulatable. My initial reaction was completely neutral. That's Professor Brian Leiter, the Carl N. Llewellyn Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of Chicago Law School. <laughs> it was only subsequently uh, that I began to see what some of the problems were. Let's talk specifically, though, about the preponderance of the, the evidence standard. Um, I think the first thing to say about preponderance of the evidence standard is that you can't consider that in isolation from the other aspects of the procedures that universities employ when they try to adjudicate these cases. Because, look, the standard of proof, whether it's preponderance of the evidence, clear and convincing evidence, beyond a reasonable doubt... All of those standards are a certain kind of procedural safeguard against false verdicts, right? Against getting it wrong. Um, but they aren't the only ones. Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> the ability to confront the witnesses against you, to cross-examine them, is another safeguard, right? Um, the right to be represented by counsel is another kind of procedural safeguard. Um, a neutral and experienced adjudicator is another kind of safeguard. Certain rules of evidence about what can and can't come in often function as safeguards um, against false verdicts. So the, the real issue about preponderance um, is that in the context in which most of these university investigations proceed, because they are full of procedural shortcomings, all right. 
one worries that preponderance just increases the odds of false verdicts, right? I would be less worried about preponderance of the evidence as the standard if, for example, um, each party was entitled to confront the opposing side's witnesses and evidence. If each side was, in fact, entitled to have an advocate right, on their behalf, not necessarily a lawyer, by the way. I mean, universities, um, just as they appoint Title IX investigators, right, they can appoint Title IX counsel, right, or pseudo-counsel, as it were. That is, each person, right, uh, complainant or respondent, has someone assigned to them who is their advocate, Right? Now, it doesn't have to be a pure adversarial system. You could do it on the inquisitorial model that, you know, many European countries have, um, where the, the advocate, you know, also has obligations to the process, right? To the adjudicator and not simply to the, the person they represent. Um, but right now, a very peculiar feature of this, you know, of these processes, there may be universities where this isn't true. I don't know. But a peculiar feature is that um, complainant and respondent um, both operate as their own counsel. And uh, as we know, a lawyer who has himself for a client has a fool for a client. But that's how these procedures are set up. People are forced into that, into that position. So short answer is I don't think we can consider the question of the standard of proof independent of the other procedural frailties. If other aspects of the process were better, preponderance might make perfectly good sense. Many university processes lack some of the procedural safeguards that would be available to a party in civil court. But Professor Baker does not think that this makes the preponderance of the evidence standard inappropriate. I think that argument sort of proves a little bit too much because sort of so as a doctrinal matter, as a, as a, a, with regard to due process law, it's pretty clear, it's crystal clear that schools have uh, a lot of space to craft their processes as they think best, given the particular norms of universities, given the importance of community in universities, that's all relatively clear. Um, so it's true, though, those other procedural safeguards aren't in place, but that doesn't necessarily mean you ha need a higher standard of proof. In fact, as I suggested, lots of schools have never used that higher standard of proof. Um, and by far, the most critical factor in figuring out the level of process due is the severity of the punishment. It is the property or liberty interest that is at stake. And there's nobody's property interest, and it's only maybe some sort of liberty interest. And again, it's not going to jail. It's having to switch dorms. I mean, th that's just not a very severe penalty. So I think it's highly unlikely that the Supreme Court would say, wow, if you're making that guy switch dorms, you better give him criminal procedural safeguards or even a full civil law trial. The Supreme Court's never said anything like that. If we're talking about expelling, suspension, I think is different, like go away for a term, come back. If we're talking about expelling someone, I think you may need more safeguards, right? You have to be more careful. So it could be, in fact, that the process afforded is going to depend a little bit on what's alleged. Um, and it, right, if you're talking about fully suspending someone, then, um, then you know, you can ratchet up the safeguards still. You still you're not going to provide full criminal process. Um, you know, I, I think that if you're actually, if, if something like expulsion is at stake, it's completely appropriate to let the guy get a lawyer. I actually think that we can allow everyone to lawyer up, notwithstanding the problems with that. Um, 
so so you you can have some sort of graduated system depending on what's alleged. Professor Leiter thinks that the potential sanctions are severe enough to warrant greater procedural protections for those accused. It is certainly the case that the very same act, as you all know, can give rise to either criminal or civil liability, right? I mean, O.J. Simpson was acquitted of murder, but convicted of civil wrongful death. Sorry, not convicted, but found guilty of civil uh, wrongful death related to the exact same incident. And because of the, lo the lower standard of proof made it easier to, to establish that. Um, here's what I think the question is. And again, bearing in mind that I, I think the preponderance of the evidence would be, might be perfectly fine uh, if we had other procedural safeguards, as we do in a civil lawsuit, right? Civil lawsuit has none of the, none of the procedural deficiencies that have come to light in the various lawsuits against universities about Title IX proceedings. Um, uh, but the, the question becomes, you know, what is, how bad are the penalties that are at stake, right? Um, loss of liberty and imprisonment is pretty serious. Um, uh, being branded um, uh, a sexual assailant expelled from college and having that appear on your transcript isn't as bad as going to prison for 30 years, but it's a pretty serious consequence. Right? Um, and, you know, is it a serious enough consequence to demand a higher standard of proof? Again, I'm agnostic on that. <laughs> if you don't have other procedural safeguards in place, I would lean towards a higher standard of proof because I think it's a serious enough consequence. Right? Um, and, you know, think here thinking about O.J. Simpson isn't that helpful, but uh, because, of course, his case is notorious, right? You know, and everybody or most people think, you know, he did it, right? Um, but, uh, you know, a civil verdict doesn't follow you around the way a criminal conviction does, right? You know, when you apply for a job, you're typically not asked to disclose the civil verdicts against you, unless it's a lawyer. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you if you are expelled from a university because you were found guilty of sexual misconduct by a preponderance of the evidence standard, this is going to follow you around in a way a adverse civil verdict wouldn't. Right? For example, you may not be able to actually graduate from college. Right? Or it will appear there is a gap on your resume. Why is there that gap? Right? Um, why did you transfer from the University of Chicago to, you know, Podong State University that no one's ever heard of, right? Um, so th there are pertinent differences here. Um, and, uh, and that, I think, is why, you know, people are worried about the preponderance standard, given that the consequences can be quite significant. Would a higher standard of proof make a practical difference in university proceedings? You know, having read a lot of Title IX reports, uh, gone through the legal cases that have been made public. That's Professor Laura Kipnis, a professor at the Northwestern School of Communication. 
Uh, it's very unclear what preponderance even means, you know, because in so many of these cases, it really is guesswork. And I just had a really interesting um, correspondence with somebody that I had met who uh, became the Title IX coordinator at her campus. And what she said, she said something fascinating. This is something I've never heard anyone say publicly, that the preponderance standard doesn't matter, that in every case that they've adjudicated their, um, it's either the person is guilty or they're not, you know, the evidence is clear or there isn't evidence so that the gap between, I think what she was saying is the gap between preponderance and clear and convincing is meaningless. Um, and, and that's sort of what I found or, or think is the case in the, in the, the cases that I've reviewed. It's, I, I don't think that that's really the issue, you know, preponderance versus clear and convincing. It's that, um, Title IX coordinators left to their own devices are making just very capricious and inconsistent rulings, whether or not, you know, the standard is preponderance. I mean, I think, as I said, in a lot of these cases, preponderance isn't reached, but, you know, the, the claim is that it is. Debate over the preponderance of the evidence standard relates to a more fundamental question. To what degree should universities protect the due process rights of accused students? The common law jurist William Blackstone articulated the following principle, which has since been recognized as a cornerstone of the criminal law for the past two centuries. Blackstone says it is better that 10 guilty persons escape than that one innocent suffer. Sexual misconduct is often criminal. Some of the complaints that universities are handling amount to these sort of criminal allegations. There is a lot on the line. Yet despite the criminality of the actions, the university is not imposing criminal sanctions. So there is a debate about whether Blackstone's principle should even apply to university Title IX proceedings. I think the question of procedure in these sorts of adjudications is very difficult and I cannot give you, a, I don't know what the optimal rule is. That's Professor Daniel Hemmel, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. Um, on the standard of proof question, uh, I think there is a pretty clearly optimal rule in its preponderance of the evidence. Uh, and I, I think that because uh, preponderance of the evidence, uh, so liability, if we think there's a more than 50% probability that the accuser did what they're accused of, um, is the standard that we use across civil law when we think there are uh, roughly equal error costs on both sides when we think that the cost of a false positive is about the same as the cost of a false negative. Uh, this seems to me the sort of circumstance where false positives and false negatives are really bad, but there's no reason to think that false positives are worse than false negatives. So by a false positive here, I mean the accused did not actually commit uh, the acts that would constitute sexual assault or sexual harassment uh, as defined by the university, as defined by uh, by Title IX, um, to be falsely accused and held liable for uh, for sexual harassment or sexual assault is really terrible. Uh, you could get, you know, you could potentially be suspended or expelled. It could have a, a dramatic effect on your career prospects. Uh, it could it could be a real psychological trauma. Um, but you don't go to jail. Uh, they're not criminal consequences. Um, you'll probably be able to get some sort of college degree from some institution. And there are hundreds of million or more than 100 million people in the United States, I think more than 200 million people in the United States who do okay without a college degree. 
Um, on the flip side, uh, being the victim of sexual assault or sexual harassment, and then having your accuser uh, uh, get off with impunity, um, that's also a really traumatic experience. You too may be excluded from the educational institution simply because you do not want to confront the person who attacked you on a regular basis. Um, you'll experience uh, psychological trauma as well. Uh, and there's the cost not just to the accuser in that case, uh, but to other potential victims. Uh, uh, so that this is an area where uh, we have reason to believe there's a risk of recidivism. Uh, and a false negative could lead to uh, an additional uh, uh, assault. Uh, so which of these is worse? I don't know. Um, I think uh, uh, in order to favor the clear and convincing uh, evidence standard, you would have to come up with some explanation uh, as to why it's worse uh, for uh, the falsely accused uh, to be held liable than it is for uh, the, the rightly uh, uh, accused to um, go free um, and go free. Everyone ultimately goes free here. We're not talking about uh, criminal consequences. It's not clear to me why the institution is more responsible for the false positive than for the false negative. There's two different issues here, right? One are false allegations that someone committed criminal sexual misconduct. That's Professor Leiter again. I think we don't entirely know, but it could be as low as 2%. It could be as high as 10%. Um, either of those is pretty high. <laughs> um, at, you know, uh, the closer we get to 10%, the more worrisome it gets. I don't think anyone would be very happy if we said, oh, we've got this whole criminal justice system and one out of 10 people we convict is innocent and goes to jail. I don't think we'd view that as, as actually a, an acceptable outcome. Uh, if we said one out of 50, maybe people be a little happier. Even then, you know, uh, you know, this is what, what was Blackstone's famous ratio, you know, better that 99 go free than one, you know, innocent person be convicted. Now, maybe that's not the right ratio. There's a debate about that in, um, uh, among, among scholars, but it probably captures something like a common sense view about what the standard of justice is. But the other thing to notice is, the rate of false charges, I mean, these are talking about people who are making it up, right? Um, that doesn't capture everything that's at issue because there can be complainants of misconduct who genuinely believe misconduct occurred but are mistaken, right? They are mistaken because they are mistaken about whether they consented or I've been told by people who sit on these panels that an awful lot of these cases involve both parties being quite intoxicated. And um, so in a lot of these cases, there may be allegations that, in fact, aren't warranted, though genuinely and sincerely believed. And I think we've got no idea how many of the cases right, ultimately involve that kind of situation. So on either scenario, it seems to me we're being asked to contemplate um, a lot of potential false verdicts, as it were. Um, and... While I would be less worried if we were at the 1% or 2% end, you know, we may be at the 10% end or we may be much higher if you include all the sincere but, in fact, unwarranted allegations, right? And, you know, the, the great difficulty, especially with the allegations that involve, um, you know, sexual contact, is that we face difficult questions of proof, right? And we face difficult questions of proof Often, not always, often because 
it's a question about the state of mind, right, of the parties, about whether there was consent, about what the intention of the parties were in that particular occasion. Ponderance of the evidence standard is not the only element of university Title IX proceedings that has provoked criticism. In part three of this podcast series, the same professors interviewed here will discuss other elements of the debate. Be sure to listen. This episode of Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review, was produced by Katherine Running, Tom Malloy, and John Tinkin. Music from bensound.com. Special thanks to the entire online team, including Grace Bridwell, Tom Garvey, Noelle Ottman, and our editor-in-chief, Pat Ward, and executive editor, Kyle Jorstad. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out parts one and three.